welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. And we're delighted to have our first guest, who is David Linden MP, a member of the Scottish National Party. David was first elected in 2017 with a majority, I believe, of 75 in Glasgow East, re-elected again in 2019 with a much more substantial 5,500 plus majority. He has been the SNP spokesperson for levelling up housing communities in the past, as is now known, also work on pensions and has now recently been reappointed, but as the new social justice spokesperson for the Scottish National Party. And David also left school at 16, did an apprenticeship uh, and is a massive Airdronians, I think I've said that correctly, FC fan, because uh, I see that from his social media. And something that I did say in a recent committee, which David did do a point of order on, David and I are friends. Um, but I, I appreciate that, you know, that's not the endorsement he'll be looking for. So I won't, I won't, I won't look over that for too long, David, because that probably won't help you get reelected. But look, we're delighted to have you on today's show. And I suppose the first question for us is really, Glasgow historically would have been seen as a safe sort of Labour seat. So what's really interesting is why for you, the Scottish National Party and not the Labour Party? Yeah, and no, I, mean, I think it would be fair to say that I very much bucked the trend. Um, it would also be fair to say that I joined the SNP when it was not a career choice. I mean, I got involved with the Scottish National Party in 2001, so I was 11 years old at the time. Yeah, I was one of those very unusual children, so far as everybody else in the playground was swapping preemie stickers, and I was planning my next leaflet run. Um, <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, I mean, for me, I, for you know, the majority of my kind of life, have believed that Scotland's a nation and nations are best served when they govern themselves. So I joined the SNP because that was my conviction um, and uh, I think the election that I first got involved at was the 2001 general election. Uh, the SNP took 18% of the vote. So if I was going to be one of these kind of young careerist politicians, I would have been a pretty bad one at that stage having having made that choice. Um, and then kind of through the, the early noughties was we saw things like, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. I mean, understanding the, the strength of feeling about the war in Iraq and Scotland w was pretty massive. Um, and, and so that really kind of solidified my kind of belief um, that, that Scotland was a kind of a different country, it was going a different path. And of course, Labour at, at that time were in government. Um, and, you know, I, I was, you alluded to, you know, my kind of backstory. I mean, I, I'm born in a kind of council house, um, brought up a single parent, left school at 16, did not go and do, you know, PP university, never went to university at all. I was a modern apprentice and, you know, grew up in this incredibly working class environment and you know the local Labour MP would come round every five years with his loud hailer um, and you know, I, I, even as a kind of youngster I would kind of pick up the kind of incredulity with which my neighbours would pick up and this is the oh here's Labour guy around once every five years and kind of really had taken the people of Glasgow for granted um, and I know that you probably have kind of similar thoughts in, uh, in your constituency um, so for me I almost kind of viewed Labour as being part of the establishment. And, you know, I was looking around my my local community, seeing some pretty appalling social housing with single glazing windows, damp growing. And, you know, if that's what you get with the Labour government, then perhaps you've got to do things slightly differently. And that might mean becoming an independent country and taking slightly more radical decisions than Tony Blair, who I don't think most folk would have considered to be a kind of left-wing revolutionary, would have taken. I can definitely attest to David wanted to be a left-wing revolutionary uh, from the heckles that we've I've seen opposite me in the chamber towards either people like myself, the rabid right-wingers he might describe as us, or obviously the... Uh, or, no, you're the more Prime Minister. Than <laughs> but, um, and so you've obviously got to act involved. Why 
become an MP then? Why not just stay as an activist? What yeah, made you want to go I there? Mean, so, so that was not planned. Um, and, you know, I'd be really blunt about that. Um, I kind of always say that politics is a bit like quicksand. Kind of the more you fight it, the more you get sucked into it. I, I was perfectly happy going out and delivering leaflets um, for, for the party. Um, I had no expectations that I would ever go into working for the SNP, largely because the SNP was pretty irrelevant in Glasgow. I mean, we had a, a kind of handful of councillors and a couple of regional members of the Scottish Parliament, so there weren't really kind of jobs for you to get involved in. Um, going through kind of high school academically, I was absolutely fine. Could have stayed on for fifth and sixth year, um, but largely due to confidence issues, I thought, well, university's not for me. Didn't fancy the idea of going and taking on all that debt. Um, nobody in my family had ever gone to university, so I left school with the intention of becoming a police officer. Um, but again, most people who'd be familiar with my backstory would know that um, my, my dad was imprisoned for attempted murder when I was younger. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting doing that police exam and just being incredibly concerned about how on earth I explained to the kind of chief inspector who's conducting the exam um, that my dad's in prison for attempted murder. And so I passed two out of the three tests and, and failed the, the third test by half a mark. Um, and so my plan to go and become a police officer was absolutely in tatters. Um, and I kind of fell into doing an apprenticeship with local credit union. And, you know, that, that managed to kind of fit with some of my kind of my own politics about kind of social justice and kind of redistributing wealth and all these kind of things. Um, but at no point was, was becoming a politician on the radar. Um, and it was only when I was 18 and I'd finished my apprenticeship that a by-election had been called in the constituency I now represent. And the guy who was elected, you know, took me on as his caseworker. But even at then, I had no expectations of becoming a, you know, a member of parliament. Firstly, because we, you know, didn't win Westminster elections at that point, you know, People talk about the Red Wall um, as a kind of concept you're, you're very familiar with. Um, but I mean, the real Red Wall was in Scotland. Um, they used to return, you know, 40, 50 um, Labour MPs. Um, so you wouldn't have considered going and becoming a Member of Parliament. And the, the psyche in the, the SNP as well is Westminster is not the place that you want to get. To. I mean, Westminster is the place you want to get, you know, I get up every day to make myself unemployed. Um, whereas, um, <laughs> yeah, that is know, quite for, the oxymoron. It, it is, yeah. Um, and you know, for, for, for whereas for some of my colleagues who want to be, you know, career as a parliamentarian, they go to Holyrood, they become a government minister. Um, and so the election took place in 2015 that, that we had this big breakthrough, and I was called by a senior cabinet minister who said to me, "Look, David, we think you should run in, in Glasgow. We think you'd be really good." Uh, and I was 25 at the time and said, "Absolutely not a chance would I be doing this." Um, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I did not like the idea of being put up in a hustings and being asked to explain why I believe in the virgin birth and you know immaculate conception, all these kind of things. Um, so I, I passed out from doing that, and um, somebody else was selected in my place, and it turned out to be an unmitigated disaster because she uh, lost the whip within six months. She was convicted of fraud, um, and then the 2017 election came round, and I got the same phone call. But this time I was told I would be standing rather than I would I consider standing. And I took one for the team and you know, the rest is history. So a really, really easy set of circumstances to, to run. Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I, I would always kind of say that I was the kind of re reluctant candidate, the reluctant MP. Um, I'm in a situation now where even, you know, I'm 32 years old now, but in terms of longevity and membership of the party, I'm probably a kind of senior member in my local branch because I've got a longer membership. We're definitely now going to badge this podcast as SNP Grande. I, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm in the, the star chamber of the SNP, apparently. So, as you touched upon, you know, a lot of the time that you've been involved, 
the SNP weren't even in charge in, in Scotland, but they are now and they have been for a yeah. while. You're a member of a parliament where you're the opposition. Yeah. How does that interplay work where you're now in charge in Scotland, in charge of a range of issues, but you yourself are, you know, you're providing the opposition and as, as you said, in a parliament you don't want to be in. Yeah, and, and that's challenging and there's there's an additional dynamic that the official opposition at Westminster is or meant to be the Labour Party. Now, I, I would happen to take the view that the Labour Party at Westminster um, is, is not radical enough. Um, so so the SNP often finds itself kind of leading the charge against things and it's only latterly that the Labour Party kind of comes on board. A really good example of that would be the, the anti-strikes legislation um, where I think, you know, for the, for the programme motion and the money resolution, they didn't even bother opposing it. Their opposition was pretty kind of lukewarm. Um, but yeah, there is a, a, a an inescapable reality that in my constituency we've got SNP councillors, they run the council, I've got SNP MSPs, they run the Scottish government and me as an SNP MP, you know, I'm the only one that doesn't, you know, have to to kind of govern essentially. Um, and, and so that that leads to, to tensions because it means that, you know, I'm always thinking in the mindset of an opposition MP mm. and the reality is that my colleagues in local government, my colleagues in the Scottish government, are thinking about things from, well, we're the people that are holding the purse strings here. Now, of course, I would argue that the purse strings that they hold are dependent on what's passed down from Westminster. Um, but it's been a very long time now since a number of people in my party were in opposition. You know, we've been in government in Scotland since 2007. In Glasgow, we have run the council, which is, you know, got a budget of £2.2 billion. Pounds. I mean, it's, it's one of the largest local authorities in the UK. Um, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm still constantly looking at opposition politics. So that does lead to tensions in the party. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes it's a healthy tension, but sometimes it does boil over. And do you yourself ever think, now you know, you've been an MP for a little bit of time, actually, I, you know, I want to, you know, we need someone to fight the good fight down here. But do you think I wouldn't mind having a bash at governing? Um no, I mean, I, look, I, I have been pretty open. I don't, I don't think this is an exclusive even for this podcast that, you know, I, I don't have any intentions of of going to Holyrood and becoming a government minister um, because I have been working in kind of professional politics essentially since 2008. It's now 2023. The idea that I would go into my kind of, you know, late 30s, early 40s um, and continue in elected politics is, you know, it's, it's not something that fills me with a huge amount of enthusiasm. Um, so my intention is, is certainly to do kind of you know stand for one more term at Westminster, um, but you know at that stage I think it would be kind of time for me to kind of exit stage left. Um, but no, 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 no great interest in going and becoming a, a government minister at Holyrood. What's fascinating here is that dynamic. Now I know with the Conservative Party you can be an MP and a MSP, member of the Scottish Parliament. In case anyone isn't sure. Can you do that within the Scottish National Party? No, you're not allowed to do dual mandates anymore. So a really good example of that would be my colleague Neil Gray. Um, he was the MP for Adrian Schott's until 2021 and he wanted to, to transition to the Scottish Parliament. He had to resign his Westminster seat first in order to contest the, the Holyrood election. Um, so our party rules forbid us from having dual mandates. Um, so even if I had wanted to go and become an MSP, um, the, the kind of... The, the, the kind of the, the time lapse doesn't really allow for that to happen. You need to kind of make a make a decision. And I think that's right. You, you cannot do. I, I personally don't think that you can do both jobs at once. Now, Douglas Ross is a member of the Scottish Parliament, a member of the Westminster Parliament. He might argue differently, but I mean, I think you and I would both agree that being a member of Parliament is a full time job. It's not something you can kind of switch on and off from. And out of interest, that's quite a big career decision to make then, because you're effectively saying I'm going to give up 
this privileged position as yeah. an MP and risk trying to get elected in an entirely different election because you have a different uh, different franchise, different franchise. Yeah. You have a different voting yeah. system, different franchise, and also most importantly for your listeners, a completely different political context. You know, at Westminster we are very much the insurgents. We are kind of the anti-establishment party. Um, whereas in Hollywood, you know, we are standing on a record of 16 years in government. The 16 years in government means inevitably you've taken decisions that will, will cheese folk off. Um, so it's a completely different context of an election um, to take place in. So it's a huge risk and one that paid off for, for Neil Gray. Um, but not something that's going to keep me awake at night because I've got no intentions of doing it. And finally, on the election point, because I just think that's interesting, there is obviously di directly elected, but there's also this regional vote, isn't there? That, um, yeah, so we, so you kind of call it top-up system. So you've got, yeah, I think, 73 parliamentary constituencies that are essentially elected first past the post, and then we, we top up with another, I think it's about 60-odd, and that's more proportionate to the vote. So, for example... Although Glasgow is not necessarily a Conservative city, Glasgow still has two members of the Scottish Parliament um, who are Conservatives in recognition of the fact that, you know, 20-odd percent of the population vote, vote Tory. Uh, likewise, you know, we've had a Green member of the Scottish Parliament since 1999 as well. Um, so, I mean, you get into a big philosophical conversation about the, the merits of proportional representation, but I do think that it enriches our Parliament because if we had um, just first-past-the-post in, in Scotland you would end up in a situation like we have at Westminster where the SNP has 86% of the seats in Scotland. We don't take 86% of the votes. And so you mentioned where sometimes you lead down here in Westminster, the, the anti-strike leg legislation. H how do you interact with the party up in Scotland? So when you're making, well, that's quite a big decision that you're going to roll into the government on a big issue. It might seem like an obvious decision, but it has big political ramifications. How do you kind of stay in line with what's going on up there? Because from my experience, there's loads of there's loads of kind of imbalances where you have to go, well, you know, that's you they'll know in Scotland they're planning to do something and therefore you can't take a position down here in Westminster because it, it might look bad in a, in six months or a year's time. Yeah, I mean, so so it's challenging in a number of respects. I mean, firstly, there's the kind of the, the devolved reserved settlement. Um, so if something has got devolved aspects to it, um, whether it's, for example, an education issue, we, we don't generally take a position down here because um, we have our own education system in Scotland. Where it does get slightly more complicated is on things like um, some of the Home Office legislation. So a good example would be things like the Public Order Bill. Now, in the face of that bill, it talks about, you know, people's right to protest, all these kind of things. And you would think, well, you know, justice is something that's devolved. But then it starts to get a bit more complicated because what if one of my constituents who happens to be, you know, a 1950s born woman protest about pensions comes to London mm. And gets prosecuted for legislation that is within an English jurisdiction. That's when you've got to start teasing out this issue about right. Okay, is this a vote that we should take part in? Um, and you know that 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 is a tension because there are folk like myself who are kind of fundamentally constitutional nationalists. And a really good example will be there's a ten minute rule bill at Westminster today um, that looks at whether or not the Church of England should have to permit. Um, equal marriage. Um, now I'm somebody who is completely in favour of equal marriage, I am a, a huge supporter of gay rights um, but I will not take part in that because the Church of England has no jurisdiction in Scotland mm. there'll be some of my colleagues um, who will feel very strongly that this is a human rights issue, this is an LGBT rights issue and therefore they'll go ahead and vote on it um, so it, it does provide something of attention, um, it would be fair to say that Edinburgh doesn't tend to go kind of hugely involved in that. The only time when Edinburgh, um, and by Edinburgh I mean the Scottish Government, will get involved 
is if something's subject to what's called a legislative consent motion, um, then at that stage, you know, the, the two governments have got to work together. So we can't just have SNP MPs getting out and get bed in the morning, putting their clothes on and going and kind of making devolved policy on the hoof. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So when you've got something like the Home Office legislation, would you have a chat with, with Edinburgh first yeah. and say, look, we're, you know, we're thinking of doing this. This is how it, we think it will play out. Yeah, so whoever the policy leads in that case, it would be Alison Thielis, who's our spokesperson for the Home Office, it would be in contact with, you know, Scottish government ministers, Scottish government, you know, um, spads and things like that. And they would work through, you know, what is the position that we'll take on this? Because quite often what happens at Westminster is that, you know, a policy gets announced and more often than not, it's to a lot of razzmatazz and, you know, increasingly under this government, we know that Rishi Sunak, for example, loves the kind of the PR of stuff. But actually, once you drill down and you look at the kind of detail behind it, you need to kind of really consider what is the approach that you want to take to this? Good example would be, you know, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the what's being dubbed the Windsor Framework. Lots of gloss around it, but you need to kind of lift up, lift up the bonnet a little bit and have a look and see, and we would do that with Scottish Government colleagues. I think that's really interesting. So, obviously, the party leader for the Scottish National Party will sit in Holyrood. We know that, obviously, as we're recording this, that's currently Nicola Sturgeon, although there's obviously a contest, not that we're going to go into that in detail. But what's interesting, therefore, is does the party leader overall effectively tell the Westminster leader what to do? Or does Stephen Flynn, for those of you who aren't sure, who's recently become the leader of the Scottish National Party in Westminster, how much free reign does he have on decision-making ability? So there, there's not a kind of a hard and fast rule where you are, you know, Nicola Sturgeon picks up the phone and says to Stephen Flynn, you will vote this way. And equally, there's not a, you know, a mechanism for him to pick up the phone and say, I'm instructing your MPs to vote this way. It would be fair to say that has led to, to kind of tensions in the past because it is a bit of a grey area. Um, and, and so, I mean, it, it's, I can tell you this because it's, it's in the media, but I mean, I, I resigned from the front bench back in 2021 or 22 because there was a, a motion before the House to uprate benefits um, and it, was, it would essentially be a real terms cut to benefits. Now, you know, I've got an unemployment rate that's double that of the UK national average and I happen to believe that social security in the UK is inadequate. I know that you would have a different view on that, perhaps, Jonathan, but um, I, I decided that, you know, I, th I think we should be voting against this and, and colleagues in the Scottish government, I don't think we're necessarily as convinced about that. Um, and so a decision was taken by the then group leader, Ian Blackford, I presume in consultation with the Scottish government, that we would abstain. Um, and that, I'm afraid, was not something that I was willing to allow my conscience to do. So I broke the whip and I, I voted against it um, with a, a kind of small number of colleagues um, from, from across the parliament. Um, now, that that was a, a hugely challenging thing for me to do, not least because I'm a former whip, um, but for me, social security, you know, it's, it's almost like a matter of conscience. I was to, say, David, you were working pension, shadow workers' pension spokesperson. Yeah, time. and essentially, I mean, so, so now, you know, the... the that's a big deal. That's a big deal. For yeah, I mean, it was, it, it's yeah, um, and you know, it's the, it's one of the largest spending departments of the, the the UK government. It's also strategically really important in terms of independence. I mean, my goodness, the pensions are in there. That that is a, a big issue when it comes to the the, the constitutional debate. Um, so I'm now back, shadow in the Department of Work and Pensions, slightly kind of wider brief, uh, and I sit in the committee as well. Um, but this is something that, that means an awful lot to me. And it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast about, you know, this is the community I grew up in. This is not somewhere that I've been parachuted into. These are my neighbours. These are my friends. These are my family. Um, and I just was not willing to vote for something that was a real terms cut to benefits. And out of interest, obviously, I'm a member of a governing party with over 300 MPs. So 
when you're considering, am I going to vote for something, you're looking for numbers. But obviously you're in a parliamentary party with a much smaller number, albeit obviously still a very significant amount of the country of Scotland. How do you deal with that pressure? How does whipping, obviously someone who was a form whip, work in that area? Are you looking for numbers or is actually, do you find people are quite sort of just with their conscience on most issues? So I was really fortunate. I was um, I was a whip in the 17 to 19 parliament, so the, the kind of Brexit parliament. And, you know, that was fascinating. One of my biggest regrets actually as a politician is that I never kept a journal um, because, I mean, I remember seeing some some really strange things. I remember watching Guido Beb, who was a Tory MP, resign as a minister in front of me, just handing his letter to the government whip in the voting lobby and saying, I cannot support the government tonight. And then, walked in with us in the opposition lobbies and that was that was a kind of hugely symbolic moment our job as whips in the the 17 to 19 parliament wasn't that challenging in all reality because you know as a party we oppose brexit we still don't like brexit and um, when it got a little bit more complicated was around about things like the the indicative votes process um because some of my colleagues were were kind of keen on the idea of a people's vote um I went along with it, but it would be fair to say that it took quite a lot of convincing in my part to support a people's vote. Um, and so that's where it become you know, becomes a little bit more challenging. But in terms of, you know, hard kind of whipping, we didn't really have to do a lot of that. Um, it, it's often talked about in the SNP, but that iron discipline, I actually happen to think that, that, that I think some of that's a bit overcooked. Um, the, the, the big SNP machine that people talk about is, is not as, as kind of strong as people would, would perhaps like to make out, including some of their own whips. Um, but yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting parliament in seventeen to nineteen. But I mean, bear in mind, by the end of that parliament, the government lost its majority. Um, so it's simple things like making sure your members were working kind of on the estate to vote. That was more of our issue was getting folk. I mean, Ian Blackford, for example, has a five-hour car journey just to get to Inverness Airport. He has to fly from Inverness to London in an hour from uh, London Heathrow into Central London making sure that folk aren't being held up for missing votes because they've hit a deer on the side of the road yeah. was more of the headaches that I had as a whip. <laughs> as Jonathan touched upon, he's quite a sizable party down here, but one of the things I always find interesting is having worked in government, the resources you've got are huge. Mm. So you've got, you know, the minister's got spads, they've got a private office, <laughs> they've got pads. Then you've basically, I always say to people, you've got to remember if you become a special advisor, you've got essentially 3,000 people doing policy for you. Yeah. The parties in opposition, Labour, SNP, don't have anything like that kind of it's, resources. Uh, yeah. And I was like, but to the world, you have to present yourselves kind of almost as if you do. You know, you've got you've got to have the same professionalism, if I can say it. You've got to have the same kind of understanding of policy. You, uh -huh. you know, talked about the policies you looked at. You've got to be able to take them apart and put them back together. How how do you do that with the, with the without being able to rely on the civil service, which we can down here and the SNP can up in Scotland? Yeah, so I mean, obviously the, the SNP government is, is very reliant on the, the civil service in Scotland. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, down here it is a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, I have got one parliamentary researcher who does everything from kind of making appointments in my diary through to writing me, I think she's currently writing me a briefing on liability-driven investment pensions. Um, and, you know, we've got a bit of short did, money. Did you send that to Liz Truss afterwards? Well, indeed, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, if, if Liz Truss starts taking economic lectures from David Lyndon, I think that, I think Jonathan here would have a stroke. Um, but be quite a turn, yeah. It would be quite a turn. Um, but yeah, look, I, we also have a bit of short money, um, so we've got a, a kind of 
group pool of researchers, there's maybe about 10 or 15 of them, but I mean, some of them are covered in three and four departments. Um, it's slightly different. I mean, if you get somebody on from Labour, they'll tell you they get, you know, pads, so political advisors. Um, so you don't have pads? No, we don't have pads. Oh, um, wow. So, I mean, a lot of the time I'm kind of relying on doing my own research. Um, now that's, I'm, I'm, I'm an advantage on that because, you know, in a previous life I was a parliamentary researcher, so I know how to work Google. Um, but <laughs> essentially, you know, we have to do a, a heck of a lot of work ourselves. We don't have the ability to kind of go in and have civil servants or indeed an opposition pads. Um, so big shout out to, to some of the, the kind of researchers in the SNP group who basically do the work of pads but don't get paid that level and don't necessarily get the resource that they get. Can I just check, David? I, I confessed in my in a, in, a, in the first episode that I had used Wikipedia. Can I just confirm parliamentary researchers, fine parliamentarians like yourself, Wikipedia is not something that you've ever used to, to guide your way around? Uh, I, I've always avoided Wikipedia, mainly because I've seen some of the things people have written in my Wikipedia. So uh, avoid Wikipedia at all costs. <laughs> I, I Rule 101 of being a researcher. There we go. There we it did go. seem to come up quite a lot when we did the first the first interview with Jonathan. There was a lot of mentions of his going on to Wikipedia, which worried me quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't do Wikipedia, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm not, for, for somebody who's 32, I'm actually a complete technophobe. Um, I think that my, my kind of researcher is quite frustrated today. I think sometimes she feels that she's working for like Bill Cash or something, uh, given how, how much of a Luddite I can be with these things. I think that's amazing what you said about not having pads, having to literally, yes, that small pull from the short money you get, but actually having to just, your own parliamentary researcher, unlike mine, mm -hmm. who would have the uh, parliamentary research unit uh, provide things, we might get conservative research department, of course, yeah. uh, from the department will hand out information to us. You're literally having to just rely on yourself yeah. So we, we spend an awful lot of time doing kind of stakeholder engagement. So, I mean, for example, the, the brief that I cover obviously is, is kind of working pensions. So a lot of that's around about social security, it's about pensions, it's about disability. So I spend a huge amount of time kind of in meetings with and on the phone to, if it's, you know, pensions, the just group or the pensions regulator, likewise, whether it's scope or sense for disability policy. So you've got to put a, a hell of a lot of effort into kind of dealing with the stakeholders because in essence, you're kind of using their resources. Mm. But the, the difficulty with that is you've got to be able to interpret, right, what, what is it? My party's policy is I, I'm not here as a kind of mouthpiece for X, Y, or Z disability organisation. Um, so you, you've got to have a bit of political mouse for that. Something that's sometimes in quite short supply in Westminster. That's what I was going to say. Is there are there some resources that you can kind of cherry pick? So that some of those things can be can be useful. Like me and Jonathan have been involved in a mental health campaign. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me is it's the policy side is because I did mainly did media in government is a lot harder than it looks. Mm. And so anywhere you can grab stats or but stuff you can actually rely on is really valuable yeah you would, you would kind of have your kind of trusted resources so i mean you guys i would defer to you on, on on kind of issues of mental health but i mean i would imagine like some mind and stuff like that the other kind of folk that would be kind of trusted and you'd go to for me you know i'm a big fan of the likes of the joseph roundtree foundation resolution foundation um i can normally kind of with a degree of confidence and certainty realize that torsten bell will probably be roughly in my kind of political space so if they come out with something, I'm more likely to treat that with credibility than I would be, for example, the the IEA, um, which is a kind of right right wing think tank. That's more one uh, for Jonathan, I think. Yeah, I, I, that, that's if he's feeling particularly liberal that day. <laughs> I think I think they're going through a bit of a rough patch after the end of 2022, so we'll we'll skip over that. <laughs> and so within we kind of touched upon this within the SNP. There's obviously there's one central point of agreement, mm -hmm. but there's a 
I, what always struck me is there's when I would say, oh, do you know that person, that person? There's a broad, there's a breadth of views there. Mm. There's a, a, even just in the Westminster Parliament. Well, if I just give you an example, James. So when I first arrived in Parliament, I was told by some Scottish Conservative colleagues that you've got your you've got your sort of left wing progressives, and then you've got your what's been dubbed your Tartan Tories. So yeah. they would be conservative if it wasn't for the independence question. So yeah, like you, I'm quite fascinated how how you manage a breadth of opinion. So your own party. So yeah, I mean, on, on the way here, I was I was chatting to somebody on the phone, and we were kind of consoling ourselves about how terrible the leadership campaign is. But we we're saying about well, you know, at least you know, independence is sort of the glue that holds the SNP together. But I think you're right, Jim. You, you talk about it kind of almost being like a kind of broad church. I mean, it depends. I mean, who, who's listening to this podcast? But I mean, if somebody went and kind of you know, let's let's use Wikipedia as an example, but if you went and had a look at the Wikipedia of say Fergus Ewing, who is uh, you know an MSP for the Highlands of Scotland really quite kind of small c socially conservative um probably to the right of center on economics and then you compare that with for example mary black your deputy leader here at westminster who is incredibly left-wing and probably if she was in the labor party would be in the socialist campaign group and um, that is a, a hell of a kind of tent that in, in terms of that is a big tent yeah. um and, and that creates tension at times because when you are discussing economic policy, for example, Scotland has control over income tax rates. And we're seeing some of this play out, I think, in the current leadership contest. You you know, you'll have some colleagues that say, right, well, we've got control control over income tax. Let's kind of hike up income taxes as high as we can go. And then others saying, well, hold on, what would business make of this? Um, so whereas the Tory party and the Labour Party have a kind of a, a broad position that they would generally take on these issues, there is such a kind of large suite of views in the SNP. That trying to get everybody onto the same page in some of these matters is slightly more challenging. We've always managed to get there, um, but there's no doubt that you know the first leadership contest in 20 years has strained that somewhat. And so with that then, obviously when a new leadership comes in, what process have you been told might happen in terms of engagement with its MPs down in Westminster? Is there a preset sort of format? Yeah, uh, is there... Um, a special meeting that takes place. Are you guys sort of aware of what will happen uh, post the election? Um, no, and I, I genuinely don't even know who the next leader is going to be. Um, normally, I mean, you look at the last contest and you know, between, uh, say, Benny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak for the Tories, he kind of had a rough idea that Rishi Sunak was going to become the next Prime Minister. I genuinely, hand on heart, do not know who the next First Minister of Scotland is going to be six days out from recording this. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I've not even voted yet. I've, I've still not 100% made my mind up how I'm planning to vote. Part of it is because I want to hear both the candidates talk a bit more about local government funding for Glasgow. Um, that is a bit of a niche point, I accept. Um, but in short, I don't know who the new SNP leader is going to be. And although the media would, would kind of paint them as being kind of from, from different wings of the party, and to a degree there's an element of truth in that, I think that how how they're going to govern, how they're going to kind of shape the party is completely up in the air because it would not be a, a kind of an unfair characterisation to say that the SNP has really been shaken to its core over the last month. You know, we had a situation where our party leader and our chief executive were married to each other. They're both in one case out the door and the other one one foot out the door. So party headquarters is going to change. We, we've obviously just changed leadership at Westminster fairly recently and moved on to that new generation, like Sir Stephen Flynn. Um, we're going to have a new first minister. So I cannot tell you six days out from this podcast going out what the SNP is going to look like and how it's going to govern itself internally. Now, there's an element of me that's a bit concerned about that, not least because we're probably about 18 months out from a general election. Um, but equally, I think that, you know, if we... 
follow the path that we've been on at Westminster where we've moved to that next generation I happen to be of the view I mean Stephen's a friend of mine um, but I happen to be of the view that you know changing leader and kind of going for that kind of refreshed younger energetic voice has been a good thing the reality is the next first minister will be Kate Forbes or Hamza Yusuf both young and energetic and so I, I'm not as despondent as some of my colleagues about that and out of interest sorry because Look, Nicola Sturgeon won't shock you, David, is someone I, I, I vehemently disagree with on many issues. However, she has been a major part of this country's political story for a generation. Yeah. Someone I've certainly, you know, well known well before ever even considering running for parliament. What do you think of her legacy in terms of for the Scottish National Party and where you think, you know, and how that legacy will be maybe cemented. Of course, it's easy to say yeah. in the moment and with the benefit of hindsight and time, you know, things will change. But, you know, how do you think people should remember Nicola, in your opinion? I mean, I, I think that she's done a hell of a lot to probably move us a bit more to the left as a party. Um, you touched on earlier, I mean, naturally I as a kind of SNP MP cringe when people say things like tartan Tories. Um, but I mean, there, there was once a point where the SNP advocated the kind of, you know, lower rate of corporation tax and with independence, we would drive down corporation tax and almost have like some sort of race to the bottom being at levels like with, you know, with Ireland at 13%. As soon as Nicola became leader, that kind of got binned. Um, and it would be fair to say, I think that we moved a bit more to the left on economics. The other thing as well that we've seen is with the, the transfer of, you know, some of the social security powers. Nicola Sturgeon's government essentially started building the new kind of modern welfare state in Scotland, um, which I would argue is a lot more kind of generous, it's a lot more compassionate. So we now have things like the Scottish Child Payment. Um, so I, I think her legacy will really be kind of moving the party towards the, the left a bit more, um, but also building that, that kind of Scottish welfare state. Which is quite a big shift as well, because she took over from arguably... A, a big beast in Alex Salmond yeah, who obviously totally. had his sort of mark on the party as well so that's that's two big sort of very high profile people one of them and, and that comes with its own challenges because you know you get folk particularly you know my generation uh, of which you know it's, it's quite significant in the SNP that have only ever really known Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon as party leader I mean 1990 so yeah Alex Salmond first became leader in 1990 stepped down when I was 10 years old where John Swinney our current deputy first minister for a few years, um, and then Salmon came back, and then we had Sturgeon. So, you know, that there is a, a massive generational shift taking place, um, and, you know, naturally we change, people will be quite concerned about that, but I'm relatively optimistic. You mentioned that generational shift and Stephen providing that younger, fresh leadership. Is it the case that the, the kind of younger group here within the SNP, are they generally more to the left? And therefore, do you think that's in the next kind of 18 months the next general election and perhaps beyond is that is that the kind of SNP we'll, we'll see because that's interesting because that's probably a bit is that a bit more together on other issues outside of yeah, just independence yeah I would say so um, and I think the reality is as well that um, look the, the next election is you know, Jonathan and I it's our head that's in the chopping block um, because it's a general election um, I mean I, I kind of firmly think that the next election will be fought on you know two major issues one will be the, the issue of immigration I think that the Tories and part of the reason why they're talking about small boats and stuff like that is because it's, it's working for them in focus groups um, but then I think the second issue is going to be the economy um, I wouldn't be surprised if Labour go into the next election basically saying we'll have the same tax and spend policies as the government um, now that's where the SNP offers a slightly different view about, you know, what does the economy look like? What do we do in terms of public spending and taxation? Um, so I would imagine that the SNP will continue to kind of tack to the, the left on economics, partly to outflank the Labour Party, but also because that's that's what the majority of us who are parliamentarians, you know, believe in. 
Um, so, yeah, I, th I think tacking to the left, that younger generation, you'll probably see more of that. Because it's interesting because it's, it, I mean, not to be unfair to Labour, for a while it felt like Labour had kind of left the ballpark in Scotland. <clears throat> They're perhaps a bit more back now with Annas. Um, Do you think that's fair? Not not really. Um, I mean, I, from the outside, it, to yeah, me, from the I outside, think, I think from like the outside, um, I mean, people might be kind of guilty of, of kind of viewing the polls at the moment um, and forgetting that it's midterm. You know, the SNP's been in government for 16 years, the Tories have been in government for what, 13? You know, oppositions tend to poll better during kind of the, the, the midterm. I don't happen to be of the view that we're going to have some sort of massive Labour landslide at the next election. I think for two reasons. I mean, firstly and foremost, I mean, Keir Starmer is, is I see, is just dull as dishwater. Um, now, obviously, I would prefer to see Keir Starmer in government than, than you know, a Conservative Prime Minister any day of the week. But what about me, David? What about Jonathan Gullis for Prime Minister? Are you going to endorse that campaign in the future? Oh, David? my days, what I thought. It would make your job easier, David, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, it would make my job easier insofar as, you know, convince people of independence. But I think, you know, <laughs> we, we tried that kind of lurch to the right last year with Liz Truss and it didn't work very well. But in all seriousness, um, I think that the closer we get to the election, Starmer's going to come under the microscope. Um, he has nothing new to say. At least, to be fair, the Tories, they have kind of set out their stall in terms of what they're wanting to do in immigration. I happen to disagree fundamentally with it. Um, but it kind of feels to me that, that Labour are kind of just kind of sitting tight, hoping the polls stay the same. They won't stay the same for 18 months. They will narrow and hoping that government falls into the lap. The challenge for them in Scotland is you cannot get away from the fact that the constitution is one of the biggest issues in the election campaign. Now, the Tories have their view. They think that Scotland shouldn't be an independent country. It shouldn't have a referendum. The SNP takes a diametrically you know, opposed view. The problem with the Labour Party is, is that they tend to dance around in the middle of the road yeah. on the issue of the constitution. And unfortunately, when you dance around in the middle of the road from time to time, you tend to get splattered by a bus. And I think that's exactly what will happen with the Labour Party in the next election in Scotland because they cannot go around in seats like mine where there is a majority of people who support independence. There was a majority in 2014 and tell them that, you know, they, they think that independence is a terrible idea because um, that will turn people off from voting Labour, as it has done. Sorry, just very quickly, because out of interest, you with 2017, obviously since you've been elected, David, how close has the working relationship been with, the, for example, the Labour Party in Westminster? You've had Jeremy Corbyn as leader in that time. You've now got Keir Starmer. Is there a lot of, has there always been close working relationships between the two? Is that continuing or is it actually, no, you've always sort of, like, because they are, in yeah. some ways, the main opposition, you've treated them as well as, you know, someone to avoid. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so my kind of close working relationship with the Labour Party is probably closer than most folk, given that my partner is literally a Labour MP, but it would be fair to say not a Labour MP of the kind of Starmer tradition. I mean, my partner's Cat Smith, who was in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, um, would be much more closely aligned, aligned with the kind of left of the Labour Party. She's also a fine parliamentarian. She's a again, fine parliamentarian. She, she will not want my endorsement on Leaflet, so I'm definitely sorry not, for saying de that. De definitely not. Um, I mean, it's in the five years that I've been in Westminster, it, it, it's been um, an interesting relationship. So, you know, on certain issues, Corbyn, we'd be much closer to in terms of policy on things like Trident nuclear weapons, in terms of um, spending on things like social security. Um, bear in mind that first parliament was really dominated by Brexit. I mean, I think everybody knows that Corbyn is pretty much a lever. Um, I, I think he claims to have voted. I mean, I'm sceptical of that because the, the guy was essentially a kind of Alexiteer. Um, so we we worked quite closely with the Labour Party, but it was more the likes of you kind of Stephen Doughty's, the kind of the People's Vote kind of caucus. And then Starmer came into, came into position and we've had 
probably quite a frustrating relationship with the Labour front bench because they have taken the view that you know the Labour Party needs to change. Their view is the Labour Party needs to look a bit more like the Tories. I mean, let, let's be honest: when Labour and the Tories are chasing market town votes in England. So I think it's safe to say that the Labour Party are quite keen to keep the SNP a bit of a distance for worries of, you know, Nicola Sturgeon having Keir Starmer in a pocket and a billboard. I mean, privately, I'm quite happy with that kind of thing. That plays well well in my constituency. I like the idea of Scotland having an influential voice at Westminster. If it can, I, I remain to be convinced that that's the kind of thing we can do long term. Um, but the relationship with the Labour Party has changed an awful lot. And what you'll see probably in the run-up to the election is this Turner fire on both the Tories and Labour an awful lot more often. Is it beneficial for the SNP to have the Tories in power in London because it gives you a kind of clear blue water distance enemy to fight? Whereas when Labour are there, obviously, you, you're right, you know, Keir, Keir's moving the party closer to the Tories, but they are also closer to the SNP than the Tories. So it's harder. is it harder to differentiate yourself? So I, I've, I've heard this argument advanced before that, you know, somehow the, the Tories being in power in London is a good thing for the SNP. I mean, I argue it's not because, um, you know, it, it goes back, and I'm afraid to kind of go back to, to what I said at the beginning, it goes back to the fact that a Tory government will not take generous, compassionate, you know, approaches when it comes to social security. So my constituents, I would argue, are poorer and they're, they're worse off under a Tory government. Um, the other thing is, as well, is that I think we've probably broken this link that somehow you need a, a Labour government in Westminster to protect the people of Scotland. I mean, we had a Labour government in Westminster when Tony Blair decided to invade Iraq. Um, we had a Labour government in Westminster when they decided that they were going for foundation hospitals, when they were, you know, all the other kind of right-wing policies that they went with. Um, so I think part of the problem is, is that regardless of who's in power at Westminster, the genie is out the bottle in terms of the constitution now. Um, I don't see how Labour put that back in the bottle um, because... Starmer, I think, probably takes a, a very kind of hard numbers game at this and thinks, right, I might be able to get 10, 15 seats in Scotland at most. Um, but why put all that effort in there and, you know, invest that that political capital of kind of being relatively mealy-mouthed or independence in the Constitution when he can just turn his fire in the Tories? So I, I don't tend to take that view, I've got to say. Out of interest, is there any issues where you do work with Conservatives or have done? Um, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I certainly have been in a position where I have found myself in the same lobby as the Conservatives on one occasion. So back in the very early days when I was elected as a, a kind of fresh-faced, wet-behind-the-years MP, um, a 10-minute rule bill became came before Parliament on the issue of legalising cannabis for recreational use. I was the only SNP MP to vote against it. Um, it'd be fair to say that, you know, as I've got slightly older and wiser, I probably wouldn't oppose that now. Um, but I think that's the only occasion in which I can remember being in the same lobby as a Tory. That's on policy. Um, I've certainly worked quite closely with Conservatives in the past in terms of uh, advancing causes that I can happen to believe in. good example would be, there was a Tory MP before you, before you came into Parliament, a guy called Paul Masterton, who was a Scottish Tory MP for East Renfrewshire, who was, you know, quite kind of sensible, kind of moderate, progressive Tory. Uh, worked with him and some stuff around about kind of pension changes and um, issues around about neonatal care and kind of babies and stuff like that. I think I'm a progressive. 
I'm sorry, David. I, I think you you would be a progressive in you know comparison to like Marine Le Pen or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, not my you're not my idea of a progressive. Jonathan. You can put that on your leaflets for the next election. <laughs> yeah. Is that going to be my is that yeah. going to be my uh, my endorsement from David on my yeah. leaflets? Well, look, can we just say massive thank you, David, for one being brave enough to become our first guest, but two, obviously, for being so open and candid and actually hearing how the Scottish National Party works in Westminster and with the government uh, up in Holyrood is, is fascinating. So thank you very much. And uh, we hope that you'll enjoy it. And again, as we've always said, you can you can subscribe, you can like, you can give comments. Uh, and we hope that you'll uh, share your feedback on what you thought you heard today. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. Please make sure that you follow and subscribe uh, however you're listening to us. Leave us a rating and a review. And you can follow us on Twitter and see what's coming up soon at Whitehall Pod UK. Mm-hmm.